came to hear uh, from our God and King. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1, looking at verses, verses 1 to 20. 1 Samuel chapter 1, looking at verses 1 to 20. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. There was a certain man of Ramathium Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ethrahite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, being Hannah, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servants and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for, the, for him from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. 
You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come this morning in need of many things. Some of us need encouragement. Some of us need joy. Some of us need salvation. Some of us need to be reminded what is true. And Lord, with all the various needs that are among us as we gather together for worship, what we all share in common is that we desperately need to hear from you. We need to hear a word of good news, one that will raise us up and remind us that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So we ask that you would speak that word of good news to our hearts this morning from 1 Samuel. Would you bless the preaching of your word and give us hearts and ears that are hungry to hear and receive all that you have for us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The book of 1 Samuel depicts one of the more significant transition periods in the history of God's people. Israel will go from this fledgling nation state with seemingly weak tribal connections to a unified kingdom that is under the rule of a single monarch. It is an extremely important story in the history of redemption. God's promise and plan to save a people from their sins, a promise and plan that began in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is beginning to take shape in a whole new way. A new period in this history of salvation is beginning in these opening words in the book of 1 Samuel. And if you're writing this story about this monumental transition in the life of God's people, where would you begin such a story? Such a extraordinary story should have an extraordinary beginning. Well, the author of 1 Samuel begins this story by doing the exact opposite of that, of that very thing. He takes us to an unknown, unremarkable, and quite ordinary Israelite home particularly centering on a woman that no one knows and whom scripture never mentions again after these first two chapters. And I think even that in and of itself is instructive for us this morning because it teaches us that God's plan, his plan to, to save the nations through the offspring of of Abraham, his plan to provide a redeemer, his plan to renew all things on heaven and on earth takes place and often works itself out through ordinary people and in everyday life. And God's economy, seemingly small things, are not to be discounted. The kingdom of God moves forward in humble and often obscure ways. Jesus himself said the kingdom of God is like a, a mustard seed, the small seed that grows over time to the strongest of plants. And here we find God's kingdom advancing very slowly and at such a pace that can be hard for our eyes to even notice its growth. 
And this morning, as we come to this text, as we come to this story, we will see that God's plan and his kingdom are moving forward through a very messy family situation, through a distressed but yet faithful woman, and even through an unfaithful priesthood. And I want us to walk through this story together under three headings. I want us to first see a familiar scene. Then I want us to see a faithful servant. And then we'll conclude by meditating on a faithful priest. So a familiar scene, a faithful servant, and a faithful priest. So first, a familiar scene. The curtain is raised in our text and we are introduced to three characters. We are first introduced to a man by the name of Elkanah. We are told two things about this man. The first thing we learn is that he is from a place called Rothium Zophim. This is a small town that is about five miles outside of what will later be known as Jerusalem. And you can kind of think of it as a future suburb of Jerusalem. The second thing we are told in verse 2 is that Elkanah is a man who has two wives. And this is the first significant problem that we find in our text. As you read through the story, you'll notice that Elkanah is a man who has a significant measure of personal piety. He appears to be a godly man. He regularly attends the tabernacle and offers sacrifices to the Lord. He is faithful to make sure that Hannah keeps the vow that she makes to the Lord. Again, he has a significant measure of godliness. But Elkanah's life is both seriously and significantly compromised. He's involved, again, in a very messy family situation. He has not one, but two wives. Now, in the Old Testament, it's not too infrequent to meet individuals who are married to multiple women. We think of Lamech, Abraham, Jacob, King David, and later Solomon. But the reality is that polygamy has never been a part of the vision that God has for his people. The book of Genesis makes it extremely clear that that God established marriage to be between one man and one woman. This definition is later confirmed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, the king of Israel was only to marry one woman. The apostle Paul says that the marriage between one man and one woman signifies the union that Christ has with his bride and beloved Jesus is only faithful to one bride. Everywhere you see polygamy in the Bible, you see unbelievable heartbreak and despair. Because ultimately, it's not the way that God designed marriage to work, to state it plainly. Every time you see polygamy, you see a hot mess. And that is true in our text this morning. We are told the names of Elkanah's wives in verse 2. His first wife's name is Hannah. And his second wife's name is Penina. Hannah is his favorite wife. We are told in verse 5 that during times 
when they traveled to offer sacrifices to the Lord at the tabernacle in Shiloh, Elkanah gave to Hannah, his wife, a double portion because he loved her. Hannah was the apple of Elkanah's eye. His soul was knit to hers and her soul was knit to his. But there is another problem. And the problem is that Elkanah's beloved wife, Hannah, cannot have children. And the text emphasizes and underscores this point. Verse 2 tells us that Hannah had no children. In verses 5 to 6, we read that Hannah cannot have children because the Lord has closed her womb. Hannah is barren, and this is something that the Lord our God has chosen to do. Now, if you're reading this story, and you perhaps have some familiarity with the Bible, then you know that this story is strangely familiar. You might be thinking, again, this is a story that I've, I've heard or, or seen before. It's a very familiar scene. You see, Hannah is not the first, nor is she the last barren woman that we see in the scriptures. We think of Sarah, who is Abraham's wife. God promised to bless the nations through Abraham's offspring, but there's only one problem. Sarah, who is Abraham's wife, is too old to have offspring. We think of Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, who again, God reestablishes the promise to, to bless the nations through his offspring, but his wife, Rebekah, could not have children the first 20 years of their marriage. Her womb was closed. We think of Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob. Her womb was closed, and she could not have any children. We think of Manoah's wife in Judges chapter 13. And in verse 2, we read that she was barren and could not have children. We think of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, who was an older woman who, again, could not have children. You see, Hannah, according to one writer, shares in this fellowship of barrenness. And in each one of these scenes, we find that God opens the wombs of these women and they give birth to significant individuals who play mighty roles in the history of God's people. From these once barren wombs comes Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. It is to say that God's plan of redemption moves forward through this fellowship of barrenness. That each one of these new acts in the history of God's people begins with nothing. They all begin in the same place, and that place is a place of emptiness. And what is true of Hannah physically is also true of the people of God at this moment spiritually. Israel at this point in her life is spiritually barren. The period of the judges, which is the setting that, that 1 Samuel takes place in, was a period of idolatry, depravity, and moral 
degradation. Israel seemed not to have any spiritual life in her. Israel is in a place of spiritual barrenness. Again, new acts in the history of redemption often begin in these places of emptiness. And this teaches us something of how our God often chooses to work. Our God can bring life to a place of emptiness. That God can bring life to a place where there is no life. That our God doesn't need anything to work with in order to accomplish his plans and purposes. What did God have to work with when he spoke creation into existence? What did God have to work with when he parted the Red Sea? What did God have to work with when he placed life in the wombs of these women? What did God have to work with when he placed life, his, the life of his son, in the womb of a virgin? What did God have to work with when he raised the lifeless body of his son from the dead? Beloved, God doesn't need anything to work with in order to accomplish his plans and purposes. And this should encourage us this morning because when human ingenuity fails, when we run out of strength and resources, when we come to the end of ourselves and are often are without hope, our God is still able to work. That when we are at our weakest and at our lowest, God loves to, to reach out from heaven and do work on behalf of his people. Our places of emptiness, our opportunities for God to flex his mighty arm. So friend, do you find yourself here this morning in a place of emptiness? Then you are in the perfect position for God to do some of his mightiest work. This familiar scene plays out again and again in the Bible because it is a truth that you and I often forget. We subtly believe that God needs us at our best in order to accomplish his purposes. Friends, God often does his mightiest works among his people when they are at their lowest. That in the darkest of circumstances, that is when the, the light of the gospel shines even brighter. That's what this familiar scene teaches us this morning. But not only do we see a familiar scene, we also see a faithful servant in Hannah. Hannah models to us, models for us, faithfulness to God in the midst of a very distressing situation. And that brings us to our second heading, a faithful servant. So again, we are told that Hannah, the beloved wife of Elkanah, cannot have children. And the narrator makes clear that this is something that the Lord himself has chosen to do. As many of us might already know, in ancient Israel, to be one who could not have children was to be one who was considered to be cursed. There was a certain social stigma that was associated with childlessness. And even more than that, and we don't want to over-spiritualize the text, I think it's very possible that Hannah simply wanted to be a mother. She simply wanted to have a child that she could hold. She wanted her family 
to be complete. It is likely that because Hannah could not have children, her husband went and found another woman who could have children, that due to Hannah's childlessness, he went out and got another wife. Again, this is similar to what Abraham did when Sarah could not have children. He went and grabbed one of Sarah's servants named Hagar and had a child with her. So this is why we are then introduced to Elkanah's second wife, Penina. Penina is not the beloved wife, but she is the wife who can have children. She has and is able to do what Hannah cannot do. And the text suggests that Penina had several children, that she seems to be having children as often as the seasons come and go. And we are told that Penina made sure that Hannah knew this and was reminded of this on a regular basis. Hannah may be the beloved wife, but she is still the wife who cannot give Elkanah what he desires the most. We read in verses 6 to 7 that Penina was Hannah's rival, that she provoked Hannah grievously in order to irritate her. And this takes place, according to verse 7, year by year, meaning this situation took place over the span of, of several years. It tells us that one time this was so overwhelming to Hannah that it took place when she went up to the house of the Lord. A Presbyterian minister by the name of Del Ralph Davis, commenting on this story, imagines what this would look like as these individuals sat around the dinner table. He, he, he gives this illustration of what Penina would say to her children, and she would say this, now do all you children have your food? Oh my, there are so many of you, it's hard to keep track. And then one of the children blurts out, mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children, does she even want children? Penina responds, oh, oh dear, she wants children very much. Hannah, wouldn't you say that you would like at least one child? The child then interrupts his mommy and says, Dad, doesn't daddy want Miss Hannah to have children? And then Penina, with this mischievous smile, says, oh, certainly he does, but Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him. She simply cannot have kids. The child asked his mother, Penina, why not? And she says, this is something that the Lord has done to Hannah. And at the conclusion of this conversation, Penina looks at Hannah and says, Hannah, I'm pregnant again. Imagine that taking place year after year after year. It's something that you long for, you can't have, but those who are closest to you have that very gift. It appears on a certain occasion where all of this becomes too much for Hannah, so she weeps and refuses to eat. But Hannah is at such a low point that the only food that she is consuming is her own tears. And again, all of this takes place at the house of the Lord during times 
of sacrifice. And I think that teaches us something even about how we gather for worship. That the place where hope and joy should have reigned supreme for Hannah, the house of God, it is there where Hannah only experiences distress. Friends, some of us, church can be some of the most depressing and disappointing and distressing of places when we feel singled out by our trials. And for this reason, we need to make sure that we are at a church that takes the sufferings and trials of individuals seriously and respond to them with gentleness and care. That we should handle those who are burned down with sorrow with a special care, just like the Lord Jesus Christ, who is described as one who will not break a bruised reed and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. See, Hannah's tears and her lack of eating at some point begins to catch the attention of her husband Elkanah. He says this to her in verse 8. Why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not worth more to you than ten sons? I'm amongst family, so I feel like I can share this. Uh, I have a confession to make. There has been times in my marriage where if you were to stumble into the Haynes household, you would see there are moments when my wife brings a concern to me, and me, thinking that I'm wiser than I am, typically respond with something that I think is going to be extraordinarily helpful, and at the same time, it turns out not to be helpful at all. And that's the exact same thing that Elkanah is doing in our text right now. But Hannah, in her lowest moment, Elkanah effectively makes the situation about himself. That Hannah, in her distress, the only thing that her husband can think of is, babe, ain't I enough for you? Friends, that's not helpful at all. So again, Hannah cannot have children. Her husband's wife, who has several children, and who is rubbing it in her face, and her beloved husband, who is of very little help, all of this is crashing in on itself, and this causes Hannah to be in great anguish. Verse 10 tells us that she is deeply distressed. In verse 15, she describes herself as one who is troubled in spirit. In verse 16, she says that she speaks out of her great anxiety and vexation. Friends, what do you do if you are in Hannah's situation? Do you grumble? and complain against God and shake your fist at him? Do you try to numb the pain away with so many various things? Do you pretend everything is okay because that's supposedly what the godly are called to do? Notice what Hannah chooses to do in all of this. After the sacrificial meal is over, she heads to the house of the Lord with Eli the priest watching, who we'll get to in a moment, and she, according to verse 10, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Where does Hannah go in this extremely difficult situation? 
Where does she turn in her greatest time of need? Beloved, she goes to the Lord in prayer. Verse 12 tells us that she prays before the Lord, meaning that she is praying before the very, very face of God. When she had nowhere else to go, nowhere to turn to, when she was overwhelmed and sorrowful and extremely alone, she, according to verse 15, pours out her soul before the Lord. What a beautiful way to describe prayer. Pouring out your soul before the Lord. You see, Hannah is not pretending that things are all good. She is not seeking to be dignified in her prayers. No, she is bearing her soul to the Lord, laying everything that she is experiencing at his feet. Her tears are prayers of their own. Psalm 6 verse 8 reminds us that God hears the sounds of our tears. Psalm 56 verse 8 tells us that he even keeps those tears in a bottle. Beloved, our God allows us, and even more than that, commands and invites us to bring all of our griefs and sorrows and disappointments to him. You see, many individuals are overwhelmed by the tears of others, but that is not the case with our God. We can lay all of our sorrows at his feet. We can cast all of our anxieties upon the one who cares for us. As the hymn writer says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In verse 11, we get the contents of Hannah's prayer. Take a look at verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servants and remember me, and forget not your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him, give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Notice first that Hannah identifies God as the Lord of hosts. This phrase is, is typically used in times of battle. It's declaring that the Lord is the Lord of armies. It's a statement concerning his power. It speaks of his universal rule over all things. It is to say that our God is as capable as he is caring. That we pray to a God who not only listens to our prayers, but who is also strong enough to do something about the things that we pray for. And as Hannah lifts her eyes, she asks the Lord to look upon the affliction of his servants. She directly quotes Exodus chapter 3 verse 7 where God speaks of seeing the affliction of his people in Egypt. It's as if Hannah is saying, Lord, you, you looked upon the affliction of your people when they were enslaved in Egypt. You delivered them with a mighty hand. Lord, do the same thing you did in the past. Do it right now for me and give me a child. Do you see what Hannah is doing? As she pours out her soul before the Lord, 
as she bears everything, she is pleading with God based upon his character. She's praying to God based on who he has revealed himself to be. She recalls what God has done in the past and asks him to do it again in the present. Even in her distress, she remembers what is true about God. Friends, this is why we emphasize the importance of doctrine as a church. This is why we emphasize particularly what we believe about God because only a God who is big, only a God who is mighty, only a God who is strong is able to carry us through the most heartbreaking of circumstances. You see, Hannah doesn't lean upon her experience. She leans upon who she knows the Lord to be. Her faithfulness to God is displayed in her prayers to God. And in her prayer, she makes a vow. She says, Lord, if you give me a son, then I will give him back to you, and I will not allow a razor to touch his head. She's making what is called a Nazarite vow. You can read it about, read about it in Numbers chapter 6, but in essence, it's a vow of total separation or total consecration to the service of the Lord. Normally, this vow is made for very specific periods of time, but Hannah, in her plea, says, I'm going to to make this vow on behalf of my son for all of his days. Now, Now, it's worth asking, is Hannah attempting to make a bargain with God? Is she saying, Lord, if you do this, then I will do that? I don't think that's what Hannah is doing. I think Hannah is so consumed with God and his glory and his purposes that what she wanted even more than a son was a son who would belong to the Lord. Do you see the selflessness in her prayer? Hannah describes herself as a servant three times in her prayer to the Lord. She's offering to forego the joys of parenting. She's she's offering to to forfeit a new status that a child would give her in society. She's giving all of that up and saying, Lord, if you give me a son, then he's all yours. He'll be yours to use in your kingdom. In this, Hannah sets both a convicting and yet compelling example For Christian parents. Parents, what do you desire most for your children? What dreams do you have for your kids? Hannah teaches us that that for Christian parents, that our chief aim and our chief desire is that our kids would be fully committed to the Lord and useful in his kingdom that they would be successful in the eyes of God and not successful in the eyes of this world that is passing away. Above all, Hannah wants to be faithful, a faithful servant in the kingdom of God, and she wants to play her role, and she's willing to offer up her son to do just that. And after Hannah prays this prayer, as she pours out her soul before the Lord, verse 18 tells us that she went her way and ate, And her face was no longer sad. Hannah's whole 
demeanor changes after she lays everything at the feet of her God. Her countenance lifts and she leaves this time of prayer seemingly trusting in the Lord her God. She receives this blessing from Eli the priest who tells her in verse 17 to go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And Hannah does just that. After she lays all of this before the Lord's feet, she doesn't wallow in disappointment, but she washes her face, leaving, trusting that the Lord is going to answer her prayer in his own time. And we read in verses 19 to 20 that, Hannah, that the Lord remembers Hannah and that in due time she conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. God answered the prayers of his faithful servant. He opened her womb and gave her a child named Samuel, who will also be a faithful servant in the house of the Lord all of his days. We've seen a familiar scene, a faithful servant. But thirdly, and lastly, we also see a faithful priest. A faithful priest. Another character that were introduced in these opening pages in the book of 1 Samuel is Eli the priest. Eli has two sons. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas, who are mentioned in verse 3. And you learn more about these two sons later in this book. But 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12 tells us that these two priests are worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. And while Eli... Their father, who is also a priest, is not as bad as them. It is true, as you read the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, that Eli is also an unfaithful priest. And we get glimpses of this as we see the way that he interacts with Hannah in our story. Verse 9 tells us that when Hannah headed to the tabernacle or the house of the Lord, Eli the priest was sitting beside the doorpost of the temple. And then Hannah, as she pours out her soul before the Lord, Eli is watching and looking on. And take a look at how this plays out in verses 12 to 15. As she, being Hannah, continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. So Hannah is at her lowest and at her weakest. She's pouring out her soul before the Lord. She's being fervent in her prayers. And the priest of God, who should have been familiar with heartfelt prayer, who should have been able to sympathize with her, assumes that this woman is drunk. Imagine if you came into this sanctuary early on a Sunday morning and life has just been crazy for you and you're sitting on this pew and you are just laying everything out before the Lord. 
That you are, you are being faithful, not turning to your own devices, but coming to the house of the Lord and, and begging the Lord to answer your prayer. And in walks the pastor and he slaps you on your shoulder and says, hey bro, we don't do that here. You would rightly believe that that minister was not familiar with suffering. He was not familiar with heartfelt prayer. He was unable to sympathize with you in your weaknesses. You would suggest that that minister is guilty of pastoral malpractice. You see, Eli, even in this opening section of 1 Samuel, is failing in his priestly duties. He should have, again, sympathized with her situation. He should have provided comfort, not condemnation. He should have prayed for her. He should have encouraged her in her weakness. Now, Eli is an unfaithful priest, and as you move through the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, you'll see that the priesthood is in Israel is corrupt and ungodly, and ultimately this leads God to bring judgment upon the priesthood and bring it to a final end. Because not only do God's people need a king, which we see in 1 Samuel, they also need a faithful priest. You see, Hannah needed a priest who was gentle. She needed one who could sympathize with her weaknesses. She needed one who could understand her situation. She needed a priest who was familiar with pouring out his soul before the Lord. She needed a priest who would pray for her when she could not pray for herself. She needed someone who was everything that Eli was not. And beloved, the priest that Hannah needed is the priest that you and I have in the Lord Jesus Christ. That Eli, in his unfaithfulness, points to the faithfulness of Christ, who is our eternal high priest. And as our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ sacrifices not a lamb or a, a goat. No, he sacrifices his very life. A sacrifice that is without spot or blemish because he lived a perfect life, a righteous life, one that is acceptable before God. And because of this, you and I have been reconciled to the Lord. But not only does he offer a sacrifice, Jesus, after his resurrection, he ascends to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And what does he do while he is sitting at the right hand of God. Beloved, he's praying for you. What is Jesus doing right now in heaven as you and I offer worship? As our great high priest, Jesus is praying for his people. What Eli failed to do for Hannah is what Jesus never ceases to do for his people. This is what we call the, the priestly intercession of Jesus. That as our priest, Jesus ever lives to intercede for his people. That the writer of Hebrews, as we heard earlier in Hebrews chapter 7, puts it in this way. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We affirm this when we sing before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. 
Beloved, this is one of the most comforting truths in all of the Bible. One minister by the name of Robert Murray McShane puts, puts it in this way. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Beloved, Christ Jesus is praying for you. When you are overwhelmed with your situation, Christ is praying for you. When you are uncertain about your lot in life and frustrated, Christ is praying for you. When you are heartbroken and in despair, Christ Jesus is praying for you. When Satan's accusations ring louder and louder, Christ is praying for you. When you don't know what to pray or even how to pray, Christ Jesus is praying for you. And beloved, you can rest assured that God the Father will answer every single one of the prayers of his beloved son. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, even as we pray now, we take great encouragement in the fact that your Son, our Savior, is at your right hand right now praying for us. We thank you for this precious gift. Father, we ask that you would use this word that we have just heard to encourage us in our walk with you and uphold us in times of trouble. We ask these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.